Veronica Rooney. And my name's Brooklyn Shively. And this is Resilience, a podcast sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences and a proud partner of the 2021 semester program. Resilience is a word used to describe communities bouncing back from tragedy, nations recovering from crises, the land we live on after being ravaged by natural disasters and the effects of climate change. It's how we describe those who overcome adversity and thrive. On this podcast, we will interview professors in the College of Arts and Sciences about how their work intertwines with resilience, exploring how populations rethink systems to combat climate change, fight racial oppression through youth organizing, or adapt to a booming mediascape. We have a tremendous capacity to bounce back, or do we? Join us as we explore this year's semester topic, resilience. Get ready to meet Dr. Jacoby Williams, an associate professor of history and African-American and African diaspora studies at Indiana University. Dr. Williams is a black power scholar. His most recent book, From the Bullet to the Ballot, the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and racial coalition politics in Chicago documents the legacy of civil rights leader Fred Hampton and how the Black Panthers of Chicago directly influenced later political figures like Barack Obama. We spoke with Dr. Williams about his career as a historian and how studying African-American history can be empowering, unsettling, infuriating, and inspiring. We also talked about the parallels between the Black Panther Party and the Black Lives Matter movement and why so little has changed. All of this and more on this week's episode of Resilience, a podcast by Themester. Hi, Dr. Williams. How are you doing today? Doing fine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you excited. for being here. Um, all right, so we're just going to dive on in with the with the podcast. My first question is, when did you decide that you wanted to study the Black Power Movement and make that your life's work, and why? Uh, that's a bit of a long story, but the Cliff Notes version is, um, it happened in graduate school. I was writing my master's thesis on the Nat Turner insurrection and exploring a uh, 20th century approach to f- try to find a group of people or, or to see how he was uh, being remembered, Nat Turner that is, 100 years after the insurrection. And uh, the group that ev- evoked his spirit and his memory the most happened to be the Black Panther Party. Uh, I was also working at the uh, one of the archives, the Ralph J. Bunch archive at UCLA at the time as a graduate student, and David Hilliard, who was chief of staff of the Black Panther Party National Organization in Oakland, was shopping the Black Panther Party archive, uh, the Huey P. Newton papers. And I was hired and tasked to evaluate whether or not he had a definitive collection on the party. So I got to travel the country um, to see if I can find numerous, if at all, duplicates of what he had. And I was not. And then also sift through those records. And born and raised in Chicago, two of the, the greatest martyrs for us growing up that was still in us as children was first Emmett Till, 
uh, who was lynched in the south of Money, Mississippi. And the second was Fred Hafton, another 21-year-old kid who was murdered by the state, both um, during the Civil Rights Black Power era. And looking through those files, there was very little on Fred Hampton. And so I changed my mind about writing about 19th century slave revolts, uh, much to the chagrin of my uh, dissertation advisor. She was not happy about it. Uh, and then I changed to the 20th century uh, to focus on the Black Power Movement, particularly the Black Panther Party, but more narrowly focused on Chicago, my hometown and Fred Hampton. And I set out to write this narrative and, and it evolved from there. And here I am today. How did the actions and the messages of people like uh, Fred Hampton and other members of the Black Panther Party in Chicago directly influence later political figures in Chicago like Barack Obama? So Fred Hampton has a, um, a, a very unique gift of being an orator, someone who can unite the masses, who can uh, spark people to the cause that transcends racial differences. And so he is one of the chief organizers of the original Rainbow Coalition. Um, which consisted of uh, this group called the Young Patriots who did wear the Confederate flag, the Southern white Appalachian white migrants, uh, Puerto Ricans, uh, the Young Lords, and the Panthers themselves were the original organizations, but they also uh, incorporated the student left like Student for Democratic Society, uh, another group of young middle-class whites called Rise of Angry, and all these various forces, Native Americans, uh, Asian Americans, and all these various forces eventually would join forces in a coalition with them. But those three groups, the Young Patriots, the Young Lords, and the Panthers were the original Rainbow Coalition. And they saw themselves as continuing uh, Martin Luther King's work. People forget that when King was assassinated, he was leading what he called the Poor People's Campaign, this anti-capitalist a march on Washington uh, on behalf of all poor people that transcended race. So the Rainbow Coalition was very much in that spirit. And so as it trans transcended and, growed and and grew and evolved, eventually folks like Hell Washington, who became the first African-American mayor of Chicago, organized and worked with the original Rainbow Coalition, especially after Hampton was assassinated. Uh, and they began to run candidates for office, First, Bobby Rush, original Panther uh, in Chicago. Then, then Jose Chacha Jimenez of the Young Lords. Uh, he was actually the first Latino to run for office in the history of Chicago under this Rainbow Coalition uh, banner. And then Hell Washington elected um, the first black mayor and he created what he called his Rainbow Cabinet and put many of those people that was in that organization in his cabinets for the first time in Chicago history. You add women, Latinos, people with disabilities, of course, African-Americans and others, poor whites, uh, the Rainbow Coalition, who um, had real political power in the city. And so Jesse Jackson, who at the time had Operation Push, uh, was inspired by this, so he uh, appropriated the name Rainbow Coalition. So if you think of the Rainbow Coalition today, most people think of the Rainbow Push Coalition. So Jackson Jackson appropriated the title, trademarked it, didn't belong to him, and then he ran for president um, in 84. And that's the same year that Barack Obama moved to Chicago to become a political organizer. So he also inspired by many of these political actions on the ground, you know, tried to get his foot wet um, in those circles, but he was an outsider. Nobody knew him. So he, he, he I wouldn't say he failed miserably, but he had a terrible time um, getting people to trust him. So uh, he goes off to college, uh, gets his law degree. He falls in love with this woman named Michelle, who happens to be from Chicago, who actually knows all these people. And so she introduces him to those political circles. 
Um, and so Michelle doesn't get enough credit for her role in Barack Obama's evolution. And so by the time Barack Obama begins to run for office in the state, he's uh, very much in tune with some of the political figures and powerhouses in the black community in that, in that way until around 2000, when he runs for Congress against um, then uh, Bobby Rush, who was original Black Panther creator, original in Illinois chapter, original Rainbow Coalition person. It's the only election Barack Obama ever lost. And he got creamed um, because he ran as a black nationalist, whereas Bobby Rush ran as a rainbow coalition person who had transcended racial boundaries. And so you see the the the, the trajectory of racial coalition politics, the rainbow coalition. You can do you can draw a direct line for Fran Hampton all the way to Barack Obama, demonstrating the the continuation of that particular ideology. But it's a continuation of appropriation. So the only politician that was actually married to the politics was Harold Washington, both Jesse Jackson, um, even political strategists like David Axelrod, and then later Barack Obama, all appropriated the ideology and the methods, the slogans, and et cetera, for their own political gains. But it's not by accident the first black president comes out of Chicago using racial coalition politics as his platform. It's not a new phenomenon. So when he was elected senator and then later president, folks called it the Obama phenomenon. No, it's more like the Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton phenomenon, and we can actually trace that backwards um, and connect it. So in fairness to Barack Obama and in fairness to um, Jesse Jackson, Oxford and others, they will all say that they were influenced by Hell Washington. Um, they are disciples of Hell Washington. And that's fine because you, you never get elected in this country claiming that you are influenced by the Black Panther Party. Right. That's almost like maybe political suicide. And that's that's fine. But Hell Washington, if he was alive, would tell you, well, I, I'm very much influenced by the Black Panther Party and this Rainbow Coalition. That's why I created my Rainbow Cabinet. And so they indirectly have a link to the Panthers via uh, Hell Washington. So kind of going along with the idea of the Black Panther Party's messages being appropriated or translated by later generations, a lot of the Black Panther's original goals, which were, you know, defending themselves against police, ending mass incarceration, um, getting reparations to Black people, are some of the goals that are now a big part of the Black Lives Matter movement. So how would you say those original goals of the Black Panther Party are being translated now? Would you consider that to be appropriation as well? Uh, no, uh, we, we call it the struggle continues. Uh, so as the party <laughs> in the 1960s was fighting for those goals, there were people who came before them who were also fighting for those issues. Um, and here we are today as African-Americans uh, in various circles still fighting for many of those same critical issues. So we call it a continuation of the long protracted black liberation struggle. Uh, that's the best way to understand it. If I'm teaching uh, this particular topic in courses, that's the way I frame it. Um, not as a civil rights struggle, not as a black power struggle, but the long protracted black liberation movement. Uh, and it ebbs and flows with many of the issues that are important are similar today. So we live, for example, in more segregated units today than we did back in the 1960s. Um, and a lot of that has to do with housing and, and schools and education in that, in that, in that regard. 
um, and and police brutality, right? The Panthers started the whole reason for their being is what do you do when the, the force that's supposed to protect you is the one actually brutalizing? What do you do? So they learned the law from the Constitution down to the local municipal code and they began to police the police in the effort to throw up police brutality. And here we are 55 years later, talking about Black Lives Matter, still dealing with issues of police brutality. So again, these aren't new issues. These aren't just continuing trends, um, uh, except many of those issues that were alive that you articulate are being exacerbated um, by mass incarceration, crack cocaine, HIV AIDS, uh, the new COVID-19 pandemic. So many of those um, health issues, housing issues, education issues, police brutality, all those various forms of institutional racism um, are now being um, even more exposed with those new advents that were not present in the 1960s, right? We didn't have HIV, crack cocaine, the pandemic then. We do now, and we get to see the long history of uh, those kinds of institutional racism coming to play in more salient, more immediate, more immediate means um, in our current context. So yes, I will argue that it's not a um, appropriation on behalf of groups today, Black Lives Matter. It's a continuation of the long protracted struggle. So every movement has been led by young people and this movement today is no different. Uh, the, only, the only critical difference is it's led primarily by women, but not just women, but black queer women, uh, LGBTQ plus women uh, are out in front, not just men. So if you look in the past, you can name the Panthers, right? They're mostly men. You can name some of the civil rights leaders, King and others, they're mostly men. You can name the black power folks, right? Malcolm X, Nation Islam, whomever, they're mostly men. But today, the leaders are still young folks, but women. And so you have, uh, that new phenomenon uh, and a new, very critical approach taking place. Now, women were leaders then too. They were, they were mostly relegated to the shadows. They were always been the backbone of all movements, women, especially black women uh, from those periods to today. And today there's no difference. They just getting, um, they do credit as leaders out front. Um, following that, do you, I think this topic is perfect for this podcast theme of resilience because resilience is a huge motivation for both like the black power movement and the movement for black lives. Do you think that um, there's a burden that comes with the expectation for black communities to be resilient as seen throughout history? Or do you think this is a very empowering thing for um, like the youth as they're like leading in this activism? Well, I'm a historian, so for me, um, it's important for the youth to learn the past. Uh, so we are, as a as a people, you know, speaking as African Americans, in a in a general sense, because we're not a monolith, but in a general sense, we are as a people very. Um, we have survival skills. We we survive some of the most egregious uh, episodes in history, from slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration. We can, can keep going on, just even this pandemic. Uh, we are survivors, so we are resilient. Uh, so I would sell young people to learn from the past. So typically what happens is young people get fired up. They want to change their conditions and they get out and organize and move forward without looking to the past so they can demonstrate that this is not, what you're trying to do is not new. So look to the past so you can see what worked and what didn't work so you don't make the same mistakes. Um, so you can you can uh, anticipate pitfalls. You, you can uh, anticipate how the state is going to respond to your, your fight and your movement. Uh, you can get into many of the young people. I say many of them have looked to the past and they are inspired. So they don't look to King and others for romanticism. 
Right. They don't look to King as unless we do now. He had a dream. He has monuments. He has a holiday. No, they look to King for strategies, for methods that work, uh, for the ways of applying his nonviolent direct action uh, to political campaigns and social justice movements today. So you do have folks doing that kind of work. And folks don't look to the Panthers as a romanticized, uh, romanticized lenses as well. Right. They find those particular strategies and methods programs, community service programs, legislation, the ways in which institutions can be changed, policies can be attacked and, and changed as well, and adopt them to our current context. So I'm, I look very, I'm very inspired by many of the youth, um, but I'm also very cynical of many of the youth as well, because folks think clicking that like button on Facebook is activism, and it's not. Um, is thanks for your support, but it means nothing if you don't put foot to ground, come up with a program, and create those kind of efforts of change. So you do have some youth leading the charge in that way, but most of them um, are just mobilized, and that's not um, organized in a real sense. And so that's a catch twenty two for me. Very inspired, but also cynical and critical as well. Um, and and I can do that as a historian, but if I'm one of those youth, this is their movement. And they get to make the mistakes that they get to make, uh, just like those in the past have done as well. But nevertheless, they are resilient. They are moving forward. Um, they are looking to the past as a way of trying to solve the critical issues that matter to them. Uh, and the critical issue that matters the most right now is voting, in my opinion. Um, kind of going along with how um, movements reinvent themselves, um, one of the things that we were interested in talking to you about is generational trauma. Mm. and how that carries on through communities and how that plays a role in repeating some of the same issues, as you said, the never-ending struggle um, for Black liberation. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit and how it plays a role in the current oppression of Black communities? Yeah, so um, that's a real thing. And some of us experience it from the home life, the ways in which our parents can leave the home to go off to work and have various traumatic experience and come home at the dinner table, explain those things to us. And then we internalize that ourselves. So that becomes some of our experiences and I've, I've, our social location, you know, our vantage points for how we view the world. Then we get out in the real world and um, we have very defensive defense mechanisms because we've, we've had those kinds of traumas projected upon us. And then we create our, we, we experience our own as well when we get out in the past. Uh, as a historian, it's difficult for me, for example, I hate teaching slavery. I hate teaching that subject, that first half of the U.S. survey or the African-American history survey, because you have to talk about slavery. And as a historian, uh, one is supposed to be objective. And it's very difficult for me to teach slavery and be objective. Um, yeah. Because all those traumatic experiences come back and I can see um, in my own personal life, very experiences that I had that relate to those issues or as a historian, knowing what comes next and relate those traumatic experiences back to those enslaved trauma. So it's very difficult for me for, to teach that class uh, without being um, very angry about what took place and the kind of atrocities that folks were faced with atrocities at least upon the enslaved. Um, so I, I try to avoid that, that class at all costs. So my baby is teaching 
black power, civil rights, black, the Black Panther Party and others. But there's equally amount of, of tragedies and atrocities and trauma taking place in that period, too, uh, in a more recent context, because just 55 years ago. It's not that that long ago. It's the, the age of maybe some of your parents or at very least your grandparents. It's not that long ago. Um, and you can see some of those remnants taking place in our current context with um, the activists and the youth today. It's like, wow, these are these methods uh, have not gone away. So that generational trauma is something that's real, but it's also a ways in which um, folks use it to empower communities, right? You take those atrocities and we'll get expired. Look at George Floyd. Uh, not that atrocity, that traumatic experience that that 14 year old girl who, who filmed that in her cell phone, broadcasted it, uh, went viral, not just nationally, but internationally. I was a child. Without her video, there would be no George Floyd um, acknowledgement and we wouldn't even know what took place. And as this started a movement here, it started an international movement uh, around the world that everyone's affected by that and people hit the streets and so forth. So the world experienced that traumatic experience and it can have these kinds of reactions that lead to momentums and movements and legislation and fights and candidates, political candidates and, and things of that nature. And so uh, trauma is very um, nuanced in that way. It can have a negative effect um, most often times it does, but it also can be used in a positive way to mobilize, uh, to bring people who otherwise would not get involved, who like to just click the little like button on their computers or just share things, but actually get in the street and protest and do something about it, run for office, uh, which we have a whole host of people across the country, local and national elections doing because of the George Floyd traumatic event. And so trauma can have an empowering effect as well, but it is unfortunate. Yeah, so you just talked about how trauma can compound in your mentality. We also can see that it's compounded in like our physical country of America throughout all of our systems. Do you think that the movement for Black Lives can be successful within the constraints of the systems we have now that have these compounded issues over time? Or do you think that it has to be moved outside of a system somehow? Or how do well, you maneuver that? So we look into the past. Um, as a pessimist, I would say no, uh, because of the constraints of capitalism. That's the only thing that matters in this country, that greenback. You can it trumps your religion, your God, your political ideas, your sexuality, nothing comes for that dollar, period. Um, your morality, is, nothing comes for the dollar. And so if I look to the past, to so all those who attempted to change the system within the system um, have had some gains. I mean, so we can say we've, we've come a long way, but a whole lot still remains the same, unfortunately. So if we go back to King, people forget that King was advocating for a revolution. Right. And King would say this, right? I want we need a revolution to change the whole damn system. Uh, the Panthers advocated for a revolution. Malcolm, everyone's advocating for a revolution. It was a revolutionary spirit at that time as well, just put it in historical context. You got revolutions taking place all over the world in Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, and winning. Um, and so it was very much in the revolutionary spirit. But to go back to King, King would say, not only do we need a revolution, we need a revolution of values. Um, that our values need to be changed, right? So we can put the human spirit over the capital one. Um, and so will I, this is changed, who knows? Uh, we have various legislations 
um, that was supposed to solve some issues, but still did not include everyone. The New Deal is an example of that, for example. Um, uh, welfare and the way in which welfare and affirmative action is operating. Affirmative action has been under attack for the last 40 years, but it's only one group that benefited overwhelmingly from affirmative action, white women. And people don't see white women as a minority. They are. We tend to look at these issues in black and white and binaries. And so, yes, African-Americans fought for, but they didn't only include themselves. Folks with disabilities, women, everyone, all these particular minorities are uh, are supposed to be protected by this legislation. And then at the same time today, who's leading the charge to infer action? White women. <laughs> so you're advocating against your own interests. Um, and so I'm not quite sure how to answer that. The um, That's a Nobel Peace Prize um, response, uh, answer, whoever can answer that particular question. So can the system be changed from within as a pessimist, one who supports a revolutionary change? I say no. Um, look at politicians today. Look at our Congress today, our Senate today. It's a more polarized today than it was even in the segregation period. Like, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, we can't convince people to do something as simple as just put on a mask so you don't die. That's a fight and a political issue. Like, so how do we change issues that deal with race? And those on the right now are harking on critical race theory. They don't even know what it is. Uh, the ways in which we can't even look to the past, places like Texas that are changing the laws in education that, that remove words like slavery from the textbook and, and call those folks workers. <laughs> so these are the kinds of fights that are ongoing. So for me, no, I, I do not see the change in the system in that particular way because our states are too divided, our politics are too divided, and uh, we as one can't come to a conclusion to talk about truth where truth actually lies and then debate the, 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 the auspices of it. That's traditionally how academia works or history works, right? There's a who, what, when, and a where. And that's never up for debate. Now, the how and the why is what we debate in history, right? And so the how and the why is not, can't even be debated if you let those in power have their way now. Those small little uh, local state legislatures have their way. So it's, it's hard for me to see change in that regard. Uh, so I, I, again, am very much encouraged by the activist spirit of the youth and the ways in which they do believe that they can create change. Um, and I, I don't stand in the way of that. Uh, I never thought a black man named Barack Hussein Obama right after 9-11 stood a chance of ever being president in my lifetime. But it happened. So who knows? Thank you so much to Dr. Williams for discussing his work with us today. The music for the intro and outro is Wrote This Letter Instrumental by Justin Anthony Adams and Sebastian Barnaby Robertson, provided by Universal Production Music under a non-commercial license. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Resilience, a podcast by Themester.